It's a pleasure once again to be able to be here with you all and minister God's Word on this Lord's Day, especially uh, the special Lord's Day that we remember our Protestant Reformation. I think it's really the leading of the Lord that uh, <coughs> last night our brother uh, Quentin watched that movie because uh, I love that Psalm 29 hymn that we sang, and or rather the responsive reading. And then the hymn, The Lord Breaks the Cedars. And uh, let's just for a moment look back again at that wonderful psalm. I have, I understand, until 3 o'clock today. (laughs) Because we're supposed to eat lunch at 3 with our brethren, the Lutherans, up over in uh, Scapoose. Is that Scapoose? Is that right? So uh, (coughs) I'll I'll be sure to finish by then. But... uh, I was a Lutheran for a long time before I became a Bible Presbyterian, and I remember watching that movie, uh, and then also the earlier black and white movie, Luther, uh, and that was produced actually by the Missouri Synod Lutheran denomination, at least uh, to a large extent, and uh, when I was a young boy, I watched that movie many times, I memorized some of the lines from that movie, it's hard to know now what's true and what's in the movie, so I hope the movie is true. Sort of like people that read The Lord of the Rings and then they watch the movie and, and uh, they say things that aren't in the book. But uh, anyhow, uh, as Luther was a young man, you know the story, of studying the law. His father wanted him to be a lawyer and uh, sent him to the university. His father had worked his way up into the upper middle class, you might say, in business and in mining. And uh, he sent his son, Luth- uh, Martin, to be more successful to take the family name to higher heights in the the profession of the law. And you know that Luther, though, had uh, in his back of his mind, he had this concept that he was a sinner before God and and, uh, had that guilt weighing on him. But on his lonely walk back at night, he, uh, along a, a lonesome stretch of the road there, there was this great storm and like Quentin said, the, the, the lightning came and it struck right in front of him. And I don't remember now if it struck a tree or if it just stuck the, struck the ground. But uh, it was a terrible, scary thing that uh, Martin took to be a direct message from God. That he had to change his life. That he had to give up that worldly desire and serve God with all of his heart and all of his life in order to attain God's forgiveness and to attain salvation. And uh, so in that, in his mind and in that culture, the only way to do that was to forsake your family, to forsake any hope of any uh, worldly goods, to forsake marriage and family, and simply become totally dedicated to worshiping God as a monk, or if you're a lady, a nun, but uh, in his case, to become a monk. And, you know, he threw himself on the ground and he said, I'll be a monk, I'll be a monk. And uh, so he gave up his law studies. And he was quite successful in those studies. He gave them up entirely, immediately, and joined the local monastery there of the reconstituted Augustinian order. And a very strict, studious sort of of order. And... uh, greatly disappointed his father. And, uh, 
Anyhow, he thought by doing that, he could be saved. And he said, if ever a monk was saved by monkery, I was that monk. (laughs) And he took all the worst jobs. He took all the hardest watches. He punished his body. Uh, He fasted more than necessary. He, He was the perfect ideal monk. More and more. But he still had the great dread of God's judgment. But that Psalm 29 that uh, we just read is certainly fits that occasion. It says, The voice of the Lord over the waters, the Lord, the God of glory thunders, in verse 3. And then, the verse 5, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Verse 7, The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And notice in verse 9 at the end, he strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. So the great glory and strength and majesty of God revealed in this psalm. But notice the last verse of this psalm. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And here we have at the end, the God not only of fearsome majesty and of great power and wrath against the creation, but also a God who gives mercy and peace and blessing. And this is what Martin was was looking for. Uh, Today we're going to be looking here in Isaiah 6, and we see the same kind of reaction that Isaiah as when he saw the Lord lifted up in the temple and the great vision that God gave to him. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, and King Isaiah was one of the better kings of Judah. Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And this is the first of those kings that ruled while Isaiah, the prophet, ministered. So here Isaiah would have been a young man at the beginning of his prophetic life and ministry. And he was in the temple and he saw this great vision that God gave to him. And it said he saw a vision of the Lord sitting high in the throne, lifted up, filling the temple. And the angels above crying out to one another, the cherubs or the seraphs crying out one to another, holy Holy, holy. And this is the vision of God's holiness and his inaccessible holiness that separates him from us and sets him over us as our judge. And Isaiah had the same fearful response that Luther did at the end. It says he, he says in verse 5, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is something that I have never experienced, obviously. You probably haven't either. This great overwhelming vision of God's power and glory and holiness that is so much above us and so threatening over our sin that all we can do is just collapse in front of God 
and say, woe is me, like Isaiah did, and like Luther did on that lonesome road. As we are brought to that point, then that's when God gives the message of grace to us. So here in Isaiah's case, it says in verse 6, one of the seraphs, one of the angels then flew to him, having in his hand this burning coal, and he touches from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips, his mouth, with that coal. It comes from the altar. And, of course, uh, it doesn't specify which altar this was. I believe probably it was the altar of sacrifice. And, and here, uh, a coal from that altar. And, of course, the sacrifice reminds us, doesn't it, of the price that's paid for our forgiveness, that God does exact judgment for our sin at that altar. The, the victim is brought to the altar and is killed and his body is consumed as a symbol of that judgment against the sin. And our sin then is transferred to, to in, uh, in the picture of the sacrifice, it's transferred to that victim. And that victim suffers the consequence that we deserve. And as a result of that, then we are forgiven by God. That sin has been paid for. And so the coal is brought in. Such as Isaiah. And not only is Isaiah purified by that. He says your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. But not only that. But then he is given the gospel message. Now, go out and speak the words of God. Go out for us. And we have this wonderful book of Isaiah uh, remaining to us from that prophet the many years of his preaching ministry. And uh, Martin Luther loved the book of Isaiah. He called it God's little Bible. And uh, Isaiah has how many chapters, do you know? 66 chapters. How many books in the Bible? 66. So there you go. That's proof right there. But, uh, <laughs> but Isaiah uh, gives that wonderful gospel message that uh, Jesus is the servant who dies for his people and by his stripes, we are healed. So it's a wonderful connection here between this Psalm 29 and Isaiah chapter 6 and the life of Martin Luther. And it just happens to fit in with what I've been preaching as I've come down from week to week on God's attributes. And uh, today, actually, I'd like for us to look at this attribute of God's holiness, the holiness of God. And that's what the angels said, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. I remember when uh, I went to seminary, there was a liberal preacher that gave a famous message. And they said, if you had to say God was one word, what would it be? And the word he said is love. God is love. And, uh, well, the Bible says God is love. It's First John. But uh, that's not the attribute here that God emphasizes. When the angels surround the throne, they're not saying love, love, love. They're saying holy, holy holy. And it's like the holiness of God is if you have to compare things which actually in God all his attributes are one. But when you compare these things, holiness is kind of the the term that stands out as encompassing all the others. So what does holiness mean? Um, In the in the Bible, there are several words that are used for holiness. Uh, most common adjectives in the Old Testament would be 
Kadosh, in the, in the New Testament, Hagias, these are terms that mean holy, or a holy person, or a holy thing, can use those terms. So when you look at how those terms are used, it's interesting that they're not always moral terms. So you can have a holy place. You can have a, a holy object. And uh, that object is not moral. It doesn't make moral choices, but it can still be called holy. And God himself is called holy. And God's people are called holy. God's temple is called holy. Many things are referred to as holy. There are holy places. Remember when uh, Moses was in front of the burning bush, God said, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Uh, you know the story of... Uh, oh, uh, uh, isn't that interesting? It just my music carried my mind away. <laughs> uh, holy, there are holy times, holy days. Uh, there are holy persons. Uh, God said the firstborn is holy. Now, it doesn't mean the firstborn is always a Christian, but God separated the, the holy, the, the firstborn to be in a special position, you might say. Uh, some foods. It's interesting when uh, God tells them in, in Leviticus 11 what foods they can and cannot eat. He lists all these clean foods and all these unclean foods. And you shouldn't eat all this stuff and you should eat all these things. And uh, I'm glad Jesus did away with all that. It says that in the Gospel of Mark. It says that when Jesus said this, he, made all, he declared all foods clean. So uh, we don't have to distinguish now. You know, so you can eat shrimp, I guess, lobsters. Rich people eat lobsters. Poor people eat shrimp. Is that right? Uh, I don't like clams, but people, some people do. You know, but uh, we can eat all these unclean things. We can eat pork, bacon, uh, those wonderful things that wake you up in the morning are all allowed to us now. But in the Old Testament. Uh, they were unclean. But it's interesting, at the end of that chapter, in Leviticus 11, it says, do what I have written, you know, abstain from these foods, be ye holy as I am holy. So it's like holiness means don't eat all this stuff. So holiness, sometimes we have a very restricted view of what holiness means. But actually, in the Bible... Holiness has the idea of being set apart to God, something set apart. So God himself is holy. All of God's creation is here, and then God is separate, and he's holy. He's separate. He's not a part of the creation. He is separate from it. He is all good and righteous. He is holy. And what's, uh, when sin has come into the world, that has, you might say, tainted the world, and the people in it are sinners, and the whole world is condemned because of our sin, and eventually will be destroyed, and new heavens and a new earth will come. That'll be great. But when uh, you look at this world, it's like the world is not holy. God is. And so what God wants to happen are people in the world are going to have to associate with God and not with the world. There has to be a, a separation is the idea. So holiness has the idea of separation from something that's polluted or sinful. 
And uh, that's what a, a priest would do. A priest would be separate from the rest of the society, you might say. Uh, Christians in 2 Corinthians, we'll see this later, but in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, uh, come out from among them and be separate, and I will receive you. I'll be a father unto you. And that has the idea in that passage of God's holiness coming upon us. How is God holy then? I think here in verse 3, for example, we see that God is holy in his very nature. The Lord of hosts is holy. It's like holiness is a description of God himself. I have here a quotation from a professor in Scotland, uh, Finlayson, R.A. Finlayson, from the Free Church College. And he wrote an article on the holiness of God. And I really liked this paragraph. I'd just like to share it with you. Since holiness embraces every distinctive attribute of God, of the Godhead, it may be defined as the outshining of all that God is. As the sun's rays, combining all the colors of the spectrum, come together in the man's, excuse me, in the sun's shining and blend into light, so in his self-manifestation, all the attributes of God come together and blend into holiness. Holiness has, for that reason, been called an attribute of attributes, that which lends unity to all the attributes of God. To conceive of God's being and character as merely a synthesis of abstract perfections is to deprive God of all reality. In the God of the Bible, these perfections live and function in holiness. For these reasons, we can understand why holiness is expressly attributed in Scripture to each person of the Godhead, to the Father in John 17:11, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. It is attributed to the Son, Acts 4:30, that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy servant, Jesus, and especially to the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, the one who manifests and communicates the holiness of God, to his creatures. That's a, I think that's a, a fine summary of the holiness of God. He is in his nature separate from sinners. He is holy in all he is and all he does. <clears throat> all his works are holy. Whenever God does something, it's holy. So what does God do? Well, God created the universe. He created you and me in, in his providence. He rules and governs all things. So you look around and think, how can this be the work of a holy God? And uh, uh, perhaps you've wondered about that. If God is really sovereign and in control, how, how could these Hamas terrorists go and, and murder these families the way they did? How can you have all this terrible hatred? Is God doing this? So in the Bible, it makes it quite clear that all that happens is ordained by God. But God does not sin, nor does he approve of sin. 
The sin arises from the hearts of his creatures. What God does is he controls how that sin is expressed and what it does for purposes for his own glory. And God could have made everybody perfect, and that would be fine. God could have made everybody sinners and be condemned. That would be fine. But God has chosen to have a world in which some are saved and some are not. In a world in which there is strife and difficulty. It's, I believe one, one reason is that it gives Christians an opportunity to be loyal to Christ under persecution and under difficulties. To serve him when it's difficult. That's just one benefit of the way God has done things. But God, in his, in his providence, then is able to destroy the wicked and demonstrate his justice. In the case of the believers, he's able to show his love and mercy in the saving of sinners. And all these different sides of God's attributes and character are revealed to the glory of God. And we don't know why God does what he does. We know it's for his own glory. But everything he does is holy. It is good. Even though it involves sin, people's sins and wicked things that go on. And God deals with those things in time and will judge them accordingly. Whatever God does is right. And uh, we need to rest in that. I know it's hard sometimes for us because we just see part of the picture. We just see what affects us or people we love or care about. But we know that God is over all these things and all these things will be made right. God is holy in all his words. Uh, let's just turn briefly to Psalm chapter 12 and uh, verse 6. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. These are the words of the Lord, pure words, holy, true Compare that to the words of men back in verse four or verse three. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So people speak out against God. They speak out in pride. But here it says the words of the Lord are pure words. His words are different from theirs. His words are true, faithful and powerful. They will prevail. Whatever God says is holy. And you think about the Lord Jesus on the earth, everything he said was true and holy and proper. You read some of Jesus' sayings, and sometimes Jesus said things that are, you know, everybody thinks are beautiful and wonderful. Sometimes he said things that are kind of hard. People don't know what they mean. Sometimes he says things that are dark and, and mysterious. Jesus says, I said it that way so the unbelievers won't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> so sometimes we look at Jesus' words and we think, why did he say that? But we know that everything he said is holy. Now, if you have a red letter Bible, you know, where all the words of Jesus are in red print, those are what he, things Jesus said. They're all true. Then what about the black words? What about them? 
Well, they're true too. <laughs> we know that the whole scriptures were inspired by God, not just the words of Jesus. So the whole Bible is actually the word of God, inspired by the, the spirit of God, spoken by men who, who use their own minds, their own language, their own thoughts. But God guided them and kept them from error and gave the message through them that God wanted us to receive. And so this is all God's word. It's true. It's pure. That's God's holiness revealed, you might say, in word. His holiness surpasses ours. It surpasses even the holiness of the angels that he created. He is the most holy of all things. Finally, how about us? Should we be holy? This is what concerned Martin Luther. He knew God was holy but he knew he was a sinner condemned by God's justice. And how could he be made right with God? Well, by doing great things, by giving his whole life to the order of the monastery, to the order of that, of that monkish order. And that was a very sacrificial thing to do, giving up any hope of family, of wealth, of of comfort. You know, I have found the older I get, the harder it is to sleep all night. Do you, do some of you older folks have that problem? You wake up at one in the morning or two in the morning and, you know, and uh, then you wake up again at three and then you hear a little noise outside and then you wake up again. It talks about that in the last uh, chapter of Ecclesiastes, how you, you wake at the sound of a bird. Well, enjoying a full night's sleep is a great comfort. But these monks, they had, you know, they didn't have long to sleep at night. And right in the middle of it, they had to get up and go to and go say prayers in the chapel every night. Wouldn't that be kind of bothersome? I wouldn't like that. But that was one of the sacrifice. That's one of the lesser sacrifices of, of their life. These times of prayer, all through the around the clock, all the time. Uh, the food was not the best. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, their whole life, you know, it, it was sort of the same. Drudgery over and over and over again. Now, he enjoyed studying and he was able, after a while, to study books and things. And that was a great outlet for him. But it was a sacrifice. And by doing this and by being more sacrificial than all the other monks, he, he hoped that God would accept him. But he never got that acceptance. He knew that God still was against him. So he went to his confessor and he said, I, and this is, I, I, I know it's in the old movie. I don't remember if it's in the new. But the, uh, he says, uh, my sins. And it says that the, the confessor, his, the, the prior there, was so tired of Brother Martin coming all the time and confessing. Seems like he confessed every little thought that he had over and over again and just... You know, he said, oh, no, here comes Martin again. And he never had any interesting sins. It was always just these little things, like my mind wandered during the reading of the psalm or something. Uh, he, again and again, he would come to his confessor and still had no sense of forgiveness. And the confessor said, you must love God. And he said, that's my greatest sin. I cannot love God. Whenever I think of God, I think of him as judging me. And as a harsh judge, I can't 
love him. And that's my greatest sin. So what happened to Martin Luther? Well, you all know the story. And it's a wonderful thing how the Lord opened his heart by the reading of study of the book of Romans, especially when he saw that that coal from the altar was put on his lips. He saw that Jesus died for him and that Jesus bore that sin for him. And all the judgment that his sin deserved was given over to Jesus. And there was nothing that he, Martin, could do to save himself. If he was resting in what he was doing, then he wasn't saved. He had, to be saved, he has to rest in what Christ has done. And recognize that Christ's sacrifice is the only way that we are saved. And we need to rest in Christ. And that's faith. Trusting and resting in Christ, what he has done. And so we are saved by faith apart from from any works. And this was a great revelation to him and throughout his life that that understanding grew and strengthened and he became more and more confident in his salvation. So, we can be holy by being in Christ. When God looks at us when we're in Christ, he says you are holy. And his judgment is what counts. And we know that if we are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit abides in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who brought us to Christ in the first place. And he is in us. And he then makes our lives more and more holy in our own way of life and thinking and faith. And we become more and more like Christ in this life. Never perfect, obviously. Our, all, our trust always in, is in Christ, not in ourselves. But as we live our Christian lives more and more, we are made holy like Christ. So it's a wonderful attribute to contemplate the holiness of God. And may God's holiness totally capture our hearts and minds. And may we be more and more like him. Let us pray.